Well, if you're visiting with us, we're in the book of First and Second Samuel. And First and Second Samuel, we should say, if we say nothing else, is just a rip-roaring read, even if you don't get good principles out of it. Like, I would encourage you to just sit down and read straight through if you can. It's, an, it's a fantastic story. But beyond that, it has much to teach us. It has much to teach the church. It has a lot to teach us about a lot of things. One of the themes that I'm going to underline tonight, because it's going to come up again and again, is the theme of leadership. What kind of leader will the people of God have? What is a good leader? What is a bad leader? Uh, This is a major theme of the book, and we can see it in the contrast between the leader Samuel, who is one that was asked for of God and lent to God, who his leadership is based on service, who seeks God in all that he does, and eventually the leadership of Saul, uh, and of course, eventually the leadership of David. And the the writer of Samuel is at pains to show us these contrasts, and we'll highlight them as we go along. Last week, Kelly talked about the exile of God's presence away from the people of God and his return, and a kind of a mini-revival when Samuel led Israel in repentance and in returning to God after they had lamented for God. Well, by the time our chapter or our section picks up in chapter eight, almost 30 years has passed. Uh, It's it's almost a generation that has gone by as the story that we're touching on begins tonight. And the story will begin by highlighting the fact that Samuel, he's a great leader, but he's not perfect. This is Samuel eight one. If you're following along, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So Samuel's sons, who replace him, maybe Samuel's trying to establish a dynasty of judges, his sons don't walk in his ways. And in fact, the things that they do are against the teaching of Scripture. All right, judges are not supposed to take bribes. That's perverting justice. So his sons don't walk in his ways. And Samuel, in that respect, uh, is perhaps something of a failed leader. And we're going to see that this is a recurring theme through Samuel. What happens to the sons? What happens to the sons of godly men? So the response of Israel is that they have this request for a king. Now keep in mind, for hundreds of years, Israel's lived in this situation where when there was a need, they cried out to God and God raised up a deliverer. God heard their cry and raised up a deliverer and delivered them. That's been the approach that God has structured his people. There's no central government of any kind. There's no taxation or anything like that. So that's the background. But the Israelites desire a new situation. This is 8.4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king that shall reign over them. 
So this opens up a big question in the scriptures. It starts in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, and it continues here. Are kings good or bad? Is monarchy good or bad? Should Israel have a monarchy or not? Now, there's a key phrase in this section. They want a king like the nations around them. Like the nations around them. Israel was called to be holy, and holy meant different unlike the nations around them. And I think this is the damning piece of wording here, that they desire a king like the nations around them. And notice how God relates their request for a king to what? He compares it to idolatry. He compares it to all the times Israel turned away from God to worship and trust idols. So God says, listen, give them what they're asking for. Go ahead and give them what they're asking for. I'm going to use what they're asking for. And I want you, when you give them what they're asking for, to warn them about what this king will be like. 8.10 says, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take. And I'm going to stop there. Because it's a long list. And basically, God says, He will take. He will take. He will take. He will take, he will take, he will take. He will take your sons, he will take your daughters, he will take your property, he will take your crops, he will take your seed. The message is, if you ask for a king, he is going to take, 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 take from you. And I do believe the Bible is commenting on the nature of governments and the way in which governments tend to just be voracious and take more and more. And it says at the end of this section that the end result of all this is that you will be slaves. Now, that should be really ominous to an Israelite because that sounds an awful lot like what went on in Egypt. Pharaoh took and took and took until he owned everything. And Israel found themselves slaves. Now, we're not going to turn there, but I encourage you to study Deuteronomy chapter 17. Because in Deuteronomy 17, God says to Moses, listen, when the Israelites go into the land, they will probably ask for a king. And if they ask for a king, you can give them a king. But here are the stipulations about the king. This is sort of the the constitution of Israel. And what it says about the king, a few things that I want to underline. Number one, he should come from among your brothers. The king should be a brother. He should be an equal, a peer. He should not be superior or see himself as superior. And then it has a list of nots, what the king cannot do. All right, we don't get a description of what he can do, much of what he can do, but here's what he cannot do. He cannot take a lot of horses and build up a giant military apparatus. He cannot take many wives. And he cannot take a bunch of gold and silver. Now, if you know much about the story of the kings of Israel, that strikes an ominous note. Because that's precisely what many of the kings of Israel do. So it says all these things he cannot do. And then there's one thing he's given to do. And I love this. Here's what the king should do. You can appoint a king. He should be among your brothers. And here's what he's got to do. He's got to copy out the Bible by hand with the priests watching him. And making sure that he's copying out the scriptures appropriately. And the purpose of this is so that all his life, every day, he can read in the Bible. So that by reading and studying the Bible, his reign will be shaped and he will fear God and he will not think himself superior to his people. He will fear them and he will not lord it over them. 
This is a crucial, crucial element for God's teaching about what their leaders should be. And it's a rebuke to the notion of kings all around Israel. It's a rebuke to what Pharaoh is. It's a rebuke to what the emperors of all the other kingdoms are. It says this in 819. After Samuel warns, this is what it's going to be like. Have you ever, your kids wanted something and you're like, well, if you get this, this is what's going to happen. And, 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 and I'm telling you, this is what, no, I want it anyway. Well, that's what Israel does. The people refused to listen or obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So Samuel says, fine, everybody go home. And he, I guess, has a plan for how he's going to do this. So then we open up this section that I can't spend a lot of time on where we see the selection process for Saul being picked as the first king of Israel. A few things I want to point out. Remember that Hannah asked for a son and gave that son back to God. That word ask is what she said his name is related to, Samuel. Well, Saul's name is almost it's identical to the word for ask. They asked for a king, and his name is essentially ask. And the question is, what kind of leader you ask for? What is the nature of your asking with God? So there's three stages to Saul's selection. First, there's this long story about Saul searching for his father's donkeys. He sets out to search for his father's missing donkeys, and he finds a kingdom. He stumbles into a prophet, Samuel, who says, you're going to be the king of Israel Um, And uh, this extraordinary thing happens to him. After that story, Samuel gathers all of Israel together at Mizpah. And they go through lots to find out who among Israel shall be selected. And eventually it lands on Saul. I'm probably tonight going to mix up Saul and Samuel a bunch. I do it all the time. So just raise your hand if I do that. And then finally, in response to all of this, there's an attack by the Ammonites and their king Nahash. And Saul leads Israel to defeat this this enemy that rises up. So these three things happen uh, that describe the selection process of Saul. And I want to just give a snapshot of Saul really quickly before we get to the last section. Things look promising with Saul to begin with. And I think that's important to note. Saul seems as though he could be a good candidate for leadership. This is chapter 920. This is what Samuel says. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom, is all, uh, for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? He seems to be humble. This is promising. This is a good thing. You want a humble leader. That's what Deuteronomy taught. So he seems to be humble. He's God's choice. This is a second thing that makes it a good sign. 10.1 says, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign that the Lord has anointed you. And he begins to give him this list of signs. So this is promising. He's God's choice. He seems humble. More... He's filled with the Holy Spirit and changed to become a different kind of person. It says this in 10.9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. 
And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? This is like a conversion account. He he gets a new heart, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies. This is a good sign. He doesn't seem to want to grasp the kingdom. After he's anointed, he doesn't go about conspiring to make himself king. And he crushes the serpent's head. We're not going to read this chapter, but the attack of the Ammonites is led by their king, Nahash. And Nahash is the exact Hebrew word for serpent. And if you remember the promise in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent's head. Saul crushes the serpent's head. I mean, he absolutely routs the Ammonites and, 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 uh, and Nahash. So this is a great sign. Finally, in 11.2, Saul shows mercy to a bunch of rabble-rousers that didn't want him to be king. It says this in 11.12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For the day, today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. All these are good signs. He shows mercy to people who were rebellious against him. But there's a few hints, and just a few, that maybe things aren't going to turn out so well. He's from Gibeah. Anybody remember what happened in Gibeah? This is that terrible story from the book of Judges when a Levite went and stayed there with his concubine. And the men of Gibeah violated her. And then the, and she died. And the men of Gibeah, uh, or the Levite, cut her up and sent pieces of her all over Israel to rally people against Gibeah. Not a good sign. This is where he's from. He seems easily deterred from his course of action. When he's looking for the donkeys, several days pass and he's like, guys, or he says to his servant, we should go back home. And his servant's like, wait, wait, there's a man of God here. We should go check with him. He says, we don't have anything to give to him. He kind of seems like he's easily knocked off course uh, when difficulties arise. He seems to resort, and this is more ominous, to fear and intimidation in his leadership. When Nahash attacks, he takes an ox and he cuts it up in pieces and sends it all over Israel and says, whoever doesn't come, this is what's going to happen to his ox. It's kind of a leadership by fear, the Genghis Khan, Khan style. So that's not a good sign. He is the asked for king. And they're going to get what they asked for. But little did they know. what. The, well, they were warned. They knew what they asked for. Finally, after all of this, after the defeat of Nahash, we get to our chapter. And Saul says, listen, let's go and renew the, renew the kingdom. And so they go down to Gilgal, where, um, where Joshua camped during the days of the conquest of the Lamb. And this chapter is like a courtroom scene. Um, Samuel, will, there'll be three trials. One is the trial of Samuel. The second is the trial of God. And the third is the trial of the people. There will be two acquittals and one conviction. Samuel puts himself on trial first, and he says, hey, judge my leadership. What has my leadership been like? Have I abused anyone? Have I taken anybody's property? Have I taken a bribe? And they all say, no, no, you've been a great leader. And he says, fine, I'm not guilty. 
And then he recounts all the things that God has done to be faithful to his side of the covenant through all the Israel going back to uh, through all the history of Israel going back from the Exodus until that time. And this is a clear indication that God has been faithful to his part of the covenant. And finally, he brings his indictment against Israel. And this is chapter 12 and verse 10. And he he, this is their response to uh, Samuel's conviction of them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam. Oh, I'm sorry. This is, uh, sorry, correction. This is Samuel talking about what Israel did in the past. The Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel to deliver you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So he's convicting them of their unfaithfulness and their idolatry. And uh, they cry out and they say, What what shall we do? Pray for us. Don't, don't cease to pray for us. So Samuel has good news despite their guilty verdict. This is chapter 12 and verse 20. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. This is good news. They're guilty of idolatry. They're guilty of rejecting God as king. And yet God says, I'm not going to abandon you. You are still my people. And there's more good news. Because Samuel says, verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. So he says, hey, listen, this has been my whole life. And I would be sinning against God if I stopped interceding and praying on your behalf. But he ends with this solemn warning to them. Verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So he says, you're getting a king. God has allowed it. But this king is under the covenant, just like you. And the covenant says that if you trust God and are faithful to the covenant, God will bless you. But if you are unfaithful to the covenant, God will ultimately curse you. So it's a judgment. It's a warning on Israel for the future of their king. So just a few things about this section of scripture that I want to draw out. One, what went wrong? What went wrong in this section? Well, first, as I said, they wanted to be like the nations. And they were called to be different than the nations. In Scripture, God calls his people out of the cultures of the world to start a new culture. God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans to start a culture not of manipulating the gods with technology, but of trusting God. And being vulnerable and being a part of what God was doing. God calls Egypt out of Israel to start a new culture and to leave behind the ways of Egypt. And to begin to lead a new life. Well, they turn and they want to be like the nations that are around them. In their politics and in their religion, they wanted easy steps and impressive mechanisms rather than simple trust. 
They wanted to rely on, oh, if I just follow these techniques or if we, we have these technologies and these systems, they trusted external things rather than simply trusting God. They wanted to be like the nations around them. And they wanted to be like these nations, Babel and Egypt, that were tyrants. They were, they were cultures that oppressed people and that other people lorded it over other people. There was slavery rife in these kingdoms. They wanted the security of those cultures with their walls and their structures and their laws over radical trust in God. Israel had experienced radical trust in God and God had delivered them every time, but they refused that trust. They did not want God to rule over them ultimately. They did not want to learn from God how to live. They wanted to trust some external system in order to do that. So that's what went wrong, is what they wanted to trust. Second, what does it tell us about leadership? Samuel gives us a ton of wisdom about leadership, the book. We get this study in contrast that I mentioned. And we're only getting hints of this contrast with Saul here in the beginning. But it's going to get clearer next week. And the question ultimately is not whether monarchy is appropriate or not, but what kind of leader the people of God will seek and what kind of leaders the people of God will be. Does that make sense? Will they be grasping, take, take, taking, threatening leaders who use religion to justify their position? That's like the cultures around them. That's like what Saul becomes. Or will they be leaders who rely on God? all the time inquiring of God, who see their position as one of serving their brothers, who place their leadership constantly under the teaching of God in his scriptures. That's the question before them. It's the question before us. What kind of leaders will we be? What kind of leaders will we seek? Pay attention to these questions as the story unfolds in scripture. And finally, most importantly, where is Jesus in all of this? Remember, Jesus said, you search the scriptures, you're obsessed with the scriptures, but they speak of me. And here I am standing before you and you don't see me. So where is Jesus in these scriptures? Well, he's the king rejected by his people. He's the king that was ruling over them. The king that they rejected and turned to power politics. They wanted to have a political system rather than have him as their ruler. And this is, rings an ominous tone because remember what they say when Jesus is on trial. We have no king but Caesar. Here we see the beginning of the rejection of Jesus as their king. He's fighting for them despite their rejection. They've asked for a king. It's the rejection of him. Yet nonetheless, when the serpent arises to attack his people, God raises up a deliverer. And Jesus himself gives divine help to that deliverer to crush the serpent's head. Where is Jesus? He's not abandoning his people even though they turn from him. Where is Jesus? He's sending his prophet to pray for them just like he does for them. Because from the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Jesus continues to do that. And he remains faithful, and this is key, to the very long, slow process of teaching him what kind of king they should seek 
the, the long years of education of learning what bad leadership looks like. Little glimpses of good leadership that give us a hint and a foreshadowing of Jesus to come. So we're the king's people. We're the people who are to be subject to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head decisively once and for all on the cross. When we pray together, when we pray the prayer that he taught us to pray, listen to what we pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Our regular prayer is God. We want your reign and we want to learn how to do your will. We are fed with daily bread. We're fed with bounty at this table that he feeds us at with his grace and with the power of his Holy Spirit. And this is important. We face face the same temptations they faced. We face the same temptations to trust something else, to trust being like the cultures around us instead of the vulnerable, vulnerable, but absolutely secure position of trusting him and of learning his ways in all that we do. And so we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Because we're aware that we're just as vulnerable to the temptation they faced as we're just as vulnerable to that temptation. Amen. So come, Lord Jesus, uh, and may we learn to be his people. Why don't we stand and as we come to the table tonight.